Hi, and welcome to Scalescape, where we talk about all things entrepreneurship across sectors. And at the heart of these conversations is how to scale innovative solutions in a landscape of change. Joining me today is Gavin Teo from Singapore. Gavin is an experienced venture capital investor in healthcare and consumer technology and was most recently at B Capital Group. He has accumulated a wealth of experience managing investments in both digital health and consumer internet. Enjoy. Gavin, I'm incredibly excited to have you on the podcast today. I've been looking forward to having this conversation with you for quite a while now. So thank you so much for coming on today. It's absolutely my pleasure, Justin. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to our chat today as well. Fantastic. Gavin, what was your path in venture capital like? And how exactly did you end up focusing and specializing as a venture investor in health tech? Well, thank you for asking that. Uh, I started my career in investing at Comcast Ventures in 2012, uh, which is a U.S.-based uh, venture capital fund that invests in diversified technology. And uh, in the course of looking at different sectors, I put up my hand to cover healthcare and healthcare IT. Uh, one of the reasons for that was I noticed how um, incredibly um, convoluted the U.S. healthcare system is. And to navigate it as a patient or to work through business models related to um, uh, building a, a new enterprise in the space just required a lot of um, complexity in dealing with stakeholders as varied as um, uh, insurers and payers to health systems and providers uh, to um, uh, companies that were in life science, in, in pharma and me medical device technology. And last but not least, but probably most important, the patients themselves. And I found that to be a very um, intriguing market into which to think about new technologies and how they could change patients' lives. And, uh, and so uh, in the course of my five years there, and then more recently, uh, my four years investing with B Capital Group, I've spent the bulk of my uh, career and effort on healthcare IT or digital healthcare as the principal sector for investing. I see. And, and before we get into more about health tech and health tech funding, I do want to touch a bit upon your uh, experiences in VC. Uh, so just touching upon your time at B Capital Group, which has a strong focus on growth stage startups. The gamble here then isn't about product team market fit. Rather, it's a stage where um, whether you can effectively scale the company and whether you can hit the ball out of the park. So my question to you is, how do you effectively guide your portfolio companies to mid and late stage success? Um, so, you know, it was a, a privilege to be part of the B Capital team from um, the very beginning in uh, uh, late 2015, early 2016. And um, B Capital Group, as you characterize it, is, is really a growth fund these days uh, where the typical entry point is a late Series B or a Series C investment check uh, with um, reserves into later rounds, so C, D, E, and beyond. So as, as you put it, definitely growth in late stage where companies have reached a, a level of maturity where the primary focus is on scaling. Um, when I first joined the firm, uh, we were a smaller fund with more of a traditional mid-stage venture orientation. So our initial checks were Series A in many cases, um, B in most cases, and Cs in some cases. So the firm has evolved to be later. To answer your question, though, on the um, advice or guidance to um, entrepreneurs, promoters, uh, management teams of portfolio companies, now I think the role of a venture capitalist at the end of the day is to be a provider of capital and a value-added source of advice on how to deploy that capital effectively over the life cycle of a business. 
And as companies move from C to A and A to B and B to, to, to growth and beyond, those uh, challenges in that evolution obviously change. Um, and so I think you know, early on, it's about building the team and finding product market fit, as you put it, um, creating uh, a customer base initially for the product or service. And then in the later stages, it's more about how do you expand that into new geographies, perhaps adjacent product lines. And then with the benefit of additional capital and financing, how do you turn up uh, the heat on um, a sales motion and a kind of enterprise ability to go to market um, and, uh, and, and really build that business into a world-class category leader? And whether that's B2B um, or B2C, I think that uh, the, the general guidance does shift into that realm. Um, so a lot of it becomes around things like um, uh, what do you think about hiring uh, the next level of leaders within a commercial organization? Uh, so, you know, titles like um, chief commercial officer or CCO or chief revenue officer, CRO, uh, these are typically titles that you know manifest themselves a little bit later in the uh, evolution of a company. You know, at the series A or B, usually the, the CEO is the number one salesperson and champion of the business um, to their customers and then also to the venture community for raising more capital. Right. And, and I and I think as a company expands, you, you start to see a little bit more specialization in function. So how to hire for that and compensate for that, how to set up the right commission structures, um, the right onboarding and upgrading structures for management teams and these sorts of new functions become a key part of you know, the boardroom discussion and the kind of uh, advice that a VC might offer, having seen it in other companies. Just to round out the thought, I think one other area, Justin, is, of course, the nature of the venture market as you go later stage. So the types of investors that would back a growth stage company when they go from you know, C to you know, even later stage D and beyond um, is uh, you know, that, that starts to look more like um, lot, very large global funds uh, that could be um, sovereign wealth vehicles. They could be crossover funds from the public markets. They could be private equity funds with a growth strategy or carve out um, that uh, you know, looks different from a typical venture fund. Um, and it could be corporate money. It could be, you know, SoftBank started as a, as, a, as a corporate fund that became, you know, very large money manager and capital allocator globally. So you start to move into those circles. And for a lot of entrepreneurs, this may be the first time that they're navigating that world. And, you know, VCs might be able to offer some help as well there, uh, since the mix of the people that they'll be talking to as an entrepreneur is also going to change. So those are, I think, the two primary places, right, kind of commercial scaling and capital formation where uh, the emphasis of a growth investor as a value-added member of the board starts to shift versus maybe earlier stage venture investors. Right. And I think I can agree more with what you just said. Um, amazing insight. And I think what's common between um, all kinds of startups uh, in terms of the different stages is that the collaborative effort between the VC and the company is imperative. And uh, But personally, how do you work the balance between getting your hands involved all the time and when to sort of step back and to give them the room to operate? Uh, this is a delicate balance. Uh, my personal view is that um, VCs can be most effective uh, by assuming the right role through the board uh, as a very interested and aligned capital investor and partner to entrepreneurs and kind of focus at that level as opposed to dive deeper into the operations of a business. 
Um, I believe that uh, the role of an investor is to invest and govern that position uh, on behalf of all stakeholders, and the role of management is to manage and operate. So that's that's my where I personally draw the line. Uh, but having been a former operator myself, um, and I think you'll find that the profiles of a lot of uh, venture capitalists uh, around the world is that in addition to having experience in the finance industry and the startup industry, they also have technology and entrepreneurship experience too, since it's uh, complementary. Uh, in my case, I managed product uh, for a number of years at a company called Zynga, which is a social uh, gaming um, company that started in uh, the early 2000s, IPO'd in 2011. And I uh, ran product uh, on Farmville, which was a very large social game on Facebook web at the time. So I spammed a lot of Facebook feeds in my time. Uh, and one of the things that I learned from that is that there are many different ways to think about uh, product strategy and building a business where having the benefit of some pattern matching uh, from people who have seen uh, maybe more horizontal breadth um, than a vertical specialization, you know, making that one game at that point in time can actually be quite helpful, right? So as an example, uh, in, in Farmville, uh, while it was a U.S. game, um, their number two traffic uh, destination or geography of audience uh, as measured by active users was often uh, Indonesia. Uh, and this was for a game that wasn't actually localized, whether it was um, language or pricing or even the narrative of the game or the currency support or the payment method. Uh, it was U.S. dollar credit cards for a very North America conception narrative of farming. Uh, and yet it had this great um, f following of users, not necessarily monetizing users, but a lot of traffic uh, and um, uh, daily active users from many parts of the world that you wouldn't have expected. And I think that had we harnessed that power earlier, and made Farmville even more international earlier. And Zynga has done plenty since then to localize and internationalize their games. I actually think that would have been a, a real inflection driver for the value of the company versus a primarily U.S. focused. And so I think, you know, um, I wasn't uh, in the C-suite at, at Zynga, uh, but having been early as a member of that team, I kind of saw the evolution of the business. And I can imagine maybe projecting that onto companies now, whether they're in you know, social gaming or, or internet, or consumer internet or, or enterprise and more broadly, or healthcare, where I spent a lot of my time. I think um, the the VC can sometimes be helpful because we look at these businesses across different geographies and sectors and stages that showing some of this pattern matching that might not be immediately obvious to help management teams think through some of the choices that they have to make can be quite valuable as well. Um, but I think all of that still goes up to the line of where you need to respect management teams and how they focus their time and energy and effort. And they ultimately should make the call on where that budget is allocated for uh, you know, near-term and, and medium-term growth. And I think the broader discussions around long-term strategy and, and options like internationalization um, come through uh, you know, um, many cycles at the board level where uh, investors really need to understand the business properly. Now, I do think there's one exception to this, which is sometimes when there is management churn or there is a need to make C-level um, swaps or upgrades, that there can be situations where uh, former operators that are on the board um, representing primarily VC interests can um, maybe take on a more active role uh, in, say, hiring a new CEO or perhaps even stepping in where appropriate in a certain functional area. But usually this is typically not a great sign, to be perfectly honest. Um, and I think if everything works well, I think the, the, the most VCs would be very happy uh, to not have to fulfill kind of that role, uh, but do it when necessary. So that's generally my personal view on where to draw that line and to strike that balance. 
It's one thing really being a VC, but it's also an, another thing having had the experience of not just founding a company, but really being on the other side of the table, because then you really know the ins and outs of what the founding company is, is really going through. But I know you're at home a lot these days, given the circuit breaker measures in Singapore, but let's bring you back to the meeting room where you're meeting with founders of the future. What makes or breaks a pitch? Mm-hmm. Yep. So the, the pitch or the management presentation to a VC, it's usually the, um, uh, the meeting where initial interest is um, uh, kind of first um, conveyed and garnered uh, to be a new investor in financing a company that's raising capital. So it tends to be fairly early on in uh, uh, kind of um, the investment decision process on a fundraising round. That said, however, I think the best entrepreneurs at pitching, at raising capital and using this venue to align uh, new capital partners is actually done even before the pitch um, by maintaining a relationship during the course of you know, the months and years preceding a financing round, a personal relationship with VCs and to other members of industry that can speak for their credibility as founders, uh, but also in the form of companies maybe at the more late stage where there is business traction and product market fit, as we talked about earlier, to give regular updates um, in between rounds. So there is an explicit ask around capital, but there's already a familiarity and a ability to pattern match history in coming into this conversation on the part of the VC. So I think laying that groundwork is actually quite important and it can't be done in the pitch. It has to be done before and around uh, the pitch. Um, but for the pitch itself, you know, uh, the typical format is an hour where I like to think that it should be as interactive as possible. So, you know, 30 to 45 minutes of presentation with questions peppered in from the audience, the VC, uh, followed by, you know, more of an open free form 15, 20 minute, you know, sort of true discussion on key topic areas that need to be kind of explored in more detail. I think that tends to, to work well as a use of time. Uh, I think that, you know, the, the real goal is to get a, a follow up meeting uh, to open a data room so that the VC can start to do real work and make the investment case internally. Uh, and so there are a few key things that um, an entrepreneur needs to convey to check that box and, and earn that next meeting uh, in the course of that 45 minutes to an hour. Right. And I think uh, one, it is uh, the uh, attractiveness of the market. Uh, two, it is the strength of the team and the quality of their approach, uh, either prior experience and what they've achieved since their last financing round to go after that market. Um, three, I think it is product market fit, which, as you know, you mentioned earlier, I think is very important. So this is really being able to validate that the customers are sticky, that where there is churn, it is managed, that pricing is stable and there's actual profitable unit economics on the business. That's how I think about product market fit. Um, so it's you know backed up by kind of real data on actual customer cohorts, whether that's enterprise or consumer. And so there will be a data piece to that pitch. Um, then I think uh, a lot of it is around this question of um, capital profile and risk. So how effective has the company been and the management team been at growing the team, but also managing spend and operating expenses on salaries and user growth and user acquisition in line with the capital they've raised. And ideally in a way that's been more effective uh, or higher yield on that capital than competition. And competition in any big category is bound to exist. So I don't think competition is a, a bad thing or something that you should shy away from. Um, and I think that the pitch has to end very clearly with an ask. And that ask is, you know, we're raising X million dollars uh, for Y purposes for 12 to 18 months of runway to achieve Z goals. And we are going to close by 90 days from today. Right. And I think if you nail all of those things very clearly in the pitch and convey that credibility um, and the underlying fundamentals of business are strong, I think, you know, entrepreneurs are well placed then for the next step in the fundraising process.
Backtracking a little bit, I want to talk about how the VC investment process is bilateral. So one thing that can be overshadowed by sort of the power dynamic between the investor and the company is what the investor can bring to the table. So personally, or maybe even back at B Capital, what is the differentiating value add that you bring to your portfolio companies? And, you know, specifically within B Capital and your partnership with uh, Boston Consulting Group, right? Um, what kind of things can uh, VCs really look to bring to the table for companies? Yeah. Well, you know, you mentioned the word power dynamics. So let me start there before kind of sharing my view on value add, um, because I think they are related but separate points. Um, it is true that uh, when there is someone who's asking and someone in a position to grant that ask, there is a natural power dynamic. But VCs at their core uh, are custodians of capital, and they provide a service to the community in addition to the capital. Uh, part of that service is we as VCs raise money from investors in our funds called limited partners and LPs, and we're beholden to generating uh, above market returns commensurate with the risk and the trust that those LPs place in us. So there is a sell side as well as a buy side to the venture capital game. And so, you know, that lens is always at the back of the minds of you know, partners at VC funds when we're constructing a portfolio and talking to entrepreneurs. And similarly, um, the very best companies get funded in any investment cycle. Right? And we'll talk a little bit about trends in this current cycle, but even in the presence of a global slowdown and the um, effects of COVID on being able to you know, travel and do diligence, we're still seeing um, very high numbers of um, dollars being deployed in startups across the world, right? And yes, it definitely is uh, impacted negatively uh, net-net, uh, but the core message is compelling businesses that can generate great return for funds will receive venture capital activity and investment. And it is very much a two-way street in that the best VCs chase those opportunities, work hard to get in front of them, um, fight their way into financing rounds. And in these situations, the power dynamic can often be reversed, right? And I think that balance is healthy. Uh, it is not just a one-way street. And I think if you spend all of your time basically you know, sitting back and taking pitches all day from entrepreneurs that come to you because you know, uh, they, you know, are finding issues raising from other sources of capital. And not, not to say that that's, you know, that's, that's been, you know, the, the, my, my experience, but it can certainly happen. I think you'll end up with a very skewed portfolio, right? So that's just to say that this power dynamic, I think, you know, has a, a natural equilibrium to it that we should all recognize. With regards to value add, which I think is something that VCs show in also um, demonstrating their uh, right to be on the cap table of a company. I think this is a very important point. Uh, value add means different things to company at different stages of growth, as we talked about earlier in that maturing evolution. My personal answer to your question on the value add I bring to my portfolio companies is availability, attention to detail, and true alignment on what they're looking to build. And that starts with um, being thoughtful around spending time, having a board load and an investment portfolio load that's commensurate with my bandwidth to really only pick the best companies uh, to really focus on that and uh, to bring domain expertise in having a, a real understanding of the market that the companies are operating in and then spending the time to really understand what those companies are doing. Um, and not just in the boardroom, but with regards to meetings, you know, throughout the course of the year as a company goes through its stages of growth and, um, and evolution. Uh, and that's the commitment I make to the entrepreneurs that I have the privilege of backing. Now, um, of course, if the fund strategy is maybe a little bit more of a follow versus a lead strategy or more of a seed than a venture strategy, you know, you might not have the luxury of, of that approach, right, where you need to maybe um, spread your bets out over a lot of companies and, and maybe not go as deep in any one. 
because of the nature of, say, a diversified seed portfolio. Alternatively, if you're more of a, a follow-on investor, a secondaries investor, uh, maybe more of a passive investor or a syndicate as opposed to a lead participant, then you might not actually even have a line into the boardroom. But I think even then, if you're, even if you're not formally part of the board, there are many ways to add value um, if you're thoughtful about your time. And I think that is a very key consideration for entrepreneurs as they think about the availability and the, uh, the domain expertise of the people that they, they want to associate with themselves. Because at the end of the day, a capital relationship is often like a marriage. It can last you know, four, five, six, even more years before a company exits. And you want to make sure that that alignment is there. Uh, with regards to B Capital, since you asked about BCG, uh, we at B Capital had a um, a real uh, advantage, I think, in driving value to entrepreneurs uh, that was in the form of um, the partnership with the Boston Consulting Group, which is uh, one of the preeminent consulting firms globally. And the nature of that relationship was as an investor in the fund, but also as a strategic partner and network where... Um, uh, B Capital portfolio companies could tap into a very extensive corporate ecosystem of BCG clients to uh, add value as maybe a vendor into that ecosystem, into those clients, but then also uh, receive value in the form of kind of commercial partnerships. And I think that was um, that was something that uh, actually was quite attractive to a number of the companies that I backed in healthcare and beyond. Um, uh, I should mention that these days, uh, you know, I'm, I'm an advisor to B Capital, no longer a general partner and member of the investment committee as I raise a new fund uh, under my own flag. Uh, but it was, um, you know, a great partnership. And I think an example of how if you think creatively and bring the right resources to bear for a portfolio company that um, you can uh, you can really um, do a lot of good. Right. If uh, if you partner in the right way. And I was proud to be part of that that platform. Amazing. Um, I do want to pivot here towards uh, health tech, which I know you're extremely passionate about, and you do have a lot of insights regarding this as well. So previously, uh, you did speak about a three-step plan uh, for a health tech company to be successful in go-to-market and new market entry. And these steps are first to innovate and then to seek partnerships across borders and across disciplines, and then finally, you know, towards the acquisition process. So have your thoughts changed since? And could you dive in a little bit more on this three-step plan? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you very eloquently framed it and summarized it. So I don't know if there's a whole lot I, I would add at the high level or, you know, even in the core message, but maybe to go a little bit deeper into innovation, scaling, and then finally exit. Um, you know, it is a linear process, right? That one comes before the other. They are, of course, interlinked. Uh, when I think about innovation in healthcare and digital health, I really think about the role of technology. Um, and so I would guide uh, entrepreneurs uh, in uh, the pursuit of digital health businesses to really think about what, a, what is the role of technology that's changing um, an established way of doing something for the better. And in healthcare, unlike many other uh, industries, there is a very large care component, meaning there is a service level, right? The actual laying on hands of care in an online or physical setting. And we can't ignore that, right? So there's, there's already a certain degree of um, hybridization of how much technology versus service comes into being in, in delivering you know, that kind of innovation. And I think that's important to recognize. Um, I think the second bit is that healthcare is a highly regulated industry. So what you can do um, with patient data uh, is quite different than say, what a consumer internet company or social media company can do with that data. So you have to be a good custodian of that data and respect what you, what, what's been entrusted with you uh, within regulations, but then also mine that data in the right way appropriately to make uh, behavior change and recommendations actually take place, right? And that's a lot of the benefit of big data and tech. And so I think these are the sorts of innovative dimensions that um, thoughtful entrepreneurs and technologists at digital health companies address head on in their product strategy. 
with regards to scaling and commercial strategy, that second bucket, um, you know, you mentioned one axis of growth being geographic. Uh, I think that's absolutely true. Very true here in Southeast Asia, where I'm based, uh, because each of the regional economies here uh, in their own right are largely either, you know, uh, small and developed like Singapore and Hong Kong and Taiwan, or large and developing uh, where they are very much emerging markets. And, you know, businesses are building the engine while they're flying the plane, right? Because the, uh, if you will, the, the market around them is evolving quite rapidly. And so having a regional strategy, uh, which is also an international strategy from day one, uh, is, uh, is an important part of the growth um, of a business. And knowing when to deploy resources and in what sequence as you move from, say, Singapore to Indonesia or from Indonesia to Thailand uh, or to one city in a country to another city uh, from a tier one city to a tier two city. I think that kind of um, uh, investment for growth is important and having a clear plan is very important. And not to say that that isn't a consideration in other more homogenous and large economies like China or the U.S., but I think the challenges and the opportunities in a, a geographically diverse and fragmented market like Southeast Asia uh, or Europe, for that matter, uh, give rise to just a different level of consideration for healthcare entrepreneurs. And I've had the pleasure of investing in companies uh, like SilverCloud in the UK and Ireland. That's an Irish headquartered company that's one of the largest uh, software vendors for healthcare into the NHS, the British National Health Service, that actually made the jump across the Atlantic and is now co-headquartered in Boston going after the US market. So I, I can see that. Uh, you know, the fruits of that effort really play out on a national scale. And similarly, I've, you know, invested in a company here in Southeast Asia called CXA Group, which is a, um, a health uh, technology business in the insurance space um, and uh, corporate wellness space. And they are Singapore headquartered, but have brokerage licenses to ply their trade in China, uh, in multiple cities, both Beijing and Shanghai, that have their own, you know, route to market around licensing, as well as in Thailand and Vietnam and other countries as well in Southeast Asia. So that arc of growth, I think, is very, very important to think about, where ge geography is a key part of being able to sustain, you know, year-on-year -year growth that that make this, you know, an attractive venture proposition in the, in the tech world. And then finally, the path to exit is, is absolutely critical, right? I think, um, you know, being able to return capital, uh, particularly in emerging markets, is the hallmark of the rising tide that will convince more capital to then get redeployed into the space. And I think, you know, the heritage of the U.S. as being in the number one venture market in the world is because there's been 40 years of not just good investments and great companies delivering, you know, fantastic new products and services, but a very robust exit market through M&A and IPO. That is the case in China these days. Uh, wasn't the case 10 years ago. It's not really the case anywhere else, right? I think Europe has had a, a long history, but not necessarily a very deep history of IPO activity. Um, I think India is still very, very early, um, but has received a lot of capital. And I think Southeast Asia is maybe a half cycle behind in that there have been more and more funds deploying capital, but it's still been a relatively small number of companies uh, like, you know, Garena slash Shopee trading under the C umbrella um, being one example of an IPO, Razor being another example of an IPO, two Singaporean companies, of course. Uh, and then Lazada, you know, very, very big exit, but fundamentally an M&A exit to, to, um, to Alibaba. And so other than a handful of those companies, I think uh, that the story is yet to be written on what IPO activity looks like for the market that I'm in right now. And I think that the role of um, entrepreneurs working with their boards and VCs is to map that out, to not force an exit when it's premature, but to be able to um, think about different forms of uh, capital structure, 
um, uh, expansion, um, you know, swapping out investors, and ultimately liquidation uh, at the right time. And I'll, I'll, the last thing I'll say is that often in ven- the venture world, the IPO is seen as the ultimate panacea for uh, um, you know, the, uh, the checkbox of having created a lot of value. But, you know, traditionally, the IPO is actually more of a financing than an exit event, right? It's an initial public offering to retail investors to invest in a company where, you know, you really kind of as private tech venture investors are handing the baton over to institutional public investors and retail individual, you know, you and I as as consumers investing in the stock market. And that's an important thing to keep in mind, I think, which is, um, you know, as companies grow, the IPO mechanism is actually a very important path in that growth. It's not the end of the story. It's just the beginning of a new chapter. And so managing that um, evolution is an important role, I think, that VCs play in guiding entrepreneurs and working with entrepreneurs as they build their businesses. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Gavin. Um, I do want to touch a bit more about the uh, the second step of your plan. What do you think are the most effective kinds of partnerships that health tech companies can seek to create to boost their go-to-market and market entry? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I, I, some of my... Um, Thoughts earlier on on uh, kind of the nature of healthcare being one um, uh, a combination of software and service, often uh, given the care component, and then two being a highly regulated industry when it comes to data. You know, I think this is where um, uh, your question on partnerships and how you take advantage of the assets as a technology firm to commercially scale becomes quite interesting. And I know you also work in clinical content in Neurom and have thoughts as well. So I'd love to get your perspective on what you've seen work well. My personal view is that uh, as a software technology company uh, working in an ecosystem that is quite um, uh, wrought with different stakeholders and interests, as I shared earlier, right? Life science companies, payers and insurance companies, health provider systems and hospitals, and then patients themselves. It is not a direct uh, B2C market or even a B2B market. It is a B2B2B market or a B2B2C market. And that is often a stakeholder and intermediator that sits between you and the ultimate user of your service that hopefully is paying you um, to generate value being a technology business, right? And, I, and I've shared that, you know, that kind of characterization of the market to uh, health tech entrepreneurs that I've backed in the past. And so uh, how you get to that ultimate B or that ultimate C, right, often involves partnership. I have the privilege of serving on the board of Galen Growth which is an industry group here in Asia and now in Europe uh, that is a connector and a data uh, platform uh, for different stakeholders, corporates, um, healthcare companies, uh, investors, and startups to exchange information and network um, and ultimately all become stronger through through the Galen um, ecosystem. And this is not a company that I've invested in. I'm an independent board director. Uh, but what really attracts me to Julian, Helen, Dario, and the team and what they've done and why it's such a privilege to support them is that they play specifically this role of connecting startups with uh, large corporates that are trying to figure out how they get a look into the innovation happening in that first step. The kind of um, tinkering that's going on in the digital garages, so to speak, of health tech entrepreneurs and technologists in the region. And, and you know, when I say the region, Asia and globally. Uh, and, and that can mean very different things depending on industry structure. So uh, to give you an example, if you think about what uh, Ping An has done in China, they are very large health insurer, but they have uh, Ping An Good Doctor, right, which is a um, consumer facing chatbot that onboards patients and as consumers into their ecosystem, which is generally a business that uh, creates uh, margin off of uh, insurance policy premium 
and uh, uh, being able to sell and distribute that and manage that risk for gross margin. But they've moved into the provider space and they've worked with a range of different partners like Grab, right, a big ride hailing platform in Southeast Asia to think about distribution. And so that's the kind of example where if you are a technology platform and you have a unique approach to delivering a, a technology product or service to a lot of people, you can partner with a insurance company or a large corporate strategic that's in an adjacent market, in this case, you know, China, in the case of Ping'an, and you know, grow faster uh, together. Uh, similarly, uh, you know, in, in my personal experience, I have uh, invested in businesses, um, as I mentioned, like CXA Group, where they've taken investment from Singtel, the incumbent um, telco in Singapore, uh, from HSBC, one of the largest regional banks and global banks um, that's moving from financial services into insurance, um, as well as from TPAs like Humanica that are sit in the payment flow as a third-party administrator of insurance product. And as I mentioned, CXA is a brokerage, tech-enabled brokerage business. So you can see how those types of assets, whether it's uh, a telco that has consumer reach and a lot of consumer data, um, a, a insurance company, or rather a banking uh, 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 powerhouse that has an insurance um, uh, strategy for distribution in the case of HSBC can be quite helpful, especially in Hong Kong and other markets outside of Singapore. And then how having a TPA like Humanica that's active in Thailand and and um, in uh, Indonesia and other emerging markets can give them additional leverage to scale. So I'm actually a very big um, proponent of uh, using partnerships to leverage um, internal resources and get to growth faster. There is, of course, a balance to that, which we can talk about too. And that balance is that uh, is really important in, in the course of that um, growth and that partnership uh, strategy to not lose independence, right? To not lose what secret sauce enables a startup to move quickly, to outflank competition, to innovate faster with less resources. And, and part of that is not getting bogged down and becoming effectively too beholden to one or two strategic partners, but being able to still take the benefits of that relationship while ensuring independence and working with multiple parties. It's really about navigating this very delicate balance between, um, you know, sort of a bilateral growth and also really balancing, uh, you know, not giving too much of the secret sauce. Uh, I really couldn't agree more. I do want to ask, uh, without devolving the conversation into uh, another one of those uh, COVID-19 episodes, but I do want to ask, um, and it's that uh, COVID-19 has put at the forefront of the world the health tech category of tracking and tracing a contaminated population. And it's also seen the monumental rise of the telemedicine cluster. As we're looking at some sort of of hopefully some sort of normalcy in quarter one of 2021. Do you think that these sectors will remain as prominent? I do. I am very, very positive on the role of healthcare and digital health to alleviate a lot of the global concerns that have been brought about by COVID. I don't think that, um, that the COVID um, focus, if you will, on uh, virtual care models, because we can't see our doctors or you know um, other people in person in the same format that we're used to. I don't think that this is uh, a one and done thing, meaning, you know, once COVID is done, uh, we'll go back to the way things were. I actually think that there's been a fundamental shift in um, uh, consumption behavior and even in behavior in the workforce that uh, outside of healthcare has led to things like um, work from home being a very different uh, uh, interaction between employees and their um, uh, and, and their employers or between businesses and their uh, vendors and between businesses and their customers. And I think that this kind of um, uh, realization that there's a lot that we can do digitally is something that uh, ha has been talked about in healthcare for a long time and is now a necessity 
and one that I think when it becomes less of a necessity, because we will get through COVID together uh, globally, um, that you know, it, it will positively impact the speed of digitization. Um, in the US, I've had the privilege of investing in uh, several companies in the telehealth space. And I kind of use that term very broadly to mean virtual medicine, as opposed to just the video-based uh, interaction that you know, we've seen popularized by the like of Teladoc or American Well. I think there's absolutely a role for those businesses in the space, but really what they're doing is putting a video visit between an in-person uh, visit that would otherwise have taken place offline. I think there's a lot more innovation that can happen around that using AI and machine learning and using other forms of software to modernize care automation. Um, and the businesses that I'm referring to, uh, to call out two, one is Silver Cloud Health that I mentioned earlier, which is a leader in mental health, population health management, using software to uh, help health systems manage very large panels of patients um, in a space that has traditionally been stigmatized and also undersupplied. Uh, and another company, BrightMD, which is a leader in primary care health automation uh, that basically um, automates a lot of that initial visit between a patient and a doctor by taking tasks like collecting basic information, marrying that with prior uh, history and um, uh, combining that into a differential diagnosis to um, propose a uh, treatment solution for that patient on behalf of the doctor that's ultimately signed off by the doctor. So it, it's a leverage point to increase productivity for doctors. Both of these companies um, closed substantial financing rounds. In the case of uh, SilverCloud, a $19 million Series B that closed in April. In the case of BrightMD, uh, just announced, so I can share this, a $17 million uh, Series C that just closed in June, uh, right in the middle of COVID. And I think it's because there has been a, a strong um, uh, realization from the capital markets and VCs that these types of businesses are going to revolutionize digital medicine going forward for the better. And so I believe that when we think more globally um, about markets outside of the developed Western world, these pressures on the supply and demand mismatch of doctors per 100,000 population for a rapidly growing, urbanizing middle class in cities and countries around the world, that these pressures of digitization um, uh, that can be alleviated by technology um, are uh, even more going to be at the forefront of where innovation takes place and where existing methods of care can really benefit from technology. And so that's what I intend to continue to invest behind. Which countries then do you think have done especially well in employing technological solutions to alleviate their stressed and stretched healthcare systems through the global COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah. So in the short run, uh, because I sit in Singapore and like yourself, I'm Singaporean, I, I feel like uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't refer to some of the uh, efforts taken by the Ministry of Health here in Singapore to um, uh, implement uh, contact tracing technology um, to manage the spread of community cases of COVID here in our region. And um, they've done it in a very thoughtful way uh, by balancing um, the need for accurate geolocation and uh, clustering of individuals to then be able to trace effectively should there be a case that comes out, right, of such an interaction uh, with the very real concerns of individual privacy. Um, and so the way that the tra contact tracing app has been implemented, I think, strikes that balance quite well. Uh, and in fact, I was talking to a, a VC colleague of mine uh, in Europe, uh, uh, John O'Sullivan, 
who is a managing partner at ActiVC and a co-investor in some of my European investments, and the Irish government, which has also been lauded as a very successful um, uh, kind of uh, 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 government in dealing with COVID on uh, within their shores. They've actually started to collaborate with uh, with Singapore on uh, some of the exchange of best practices around specifically contact tracing. I think that a country that you know broadly COVID aside, but accelerated by COVID, has taken this to an even um, more advanced degree um, uh, is China, right? Through the integration and uh, partnership between the government and WeChat as effectively kind of the operating system for consumer behavior, right? Through the WeChat app and everything around that as a super app that you can do in China uh, as, as basically the um, calling card uh, and uh, an extension of national identification to show uh, a you know a different color uh, for a level of, uh, of safety of an individual when they enter a public or a private space, tethered specifically and directly to them through their mobile device. And that is something that I think China, uh, because of the uh, nature of the uh, geopolitical environment there and uh, the cultural acceptance of you know, that level of tracing, has been able to implement. I don't think that's something that you can do everywhere. I don't think that's something you can do in the United States. I think uh, it wouldn't be accepted. I don't think it's something that you know uh, ne is necessary here in Singapore for other reasons too. Uh, but that kind of use of technology um, with a very large incumbent tech platform like you know uh, Tencent uh, is, um, I think, a, a particular strength in these times. And so these are good examples, I think, of innovation and the use of technology. Um, during, uh, you know, uh, this particularly challenging window that we're in. Amazing. And to round things off, really, I do like to give guests a sort of a little explanation of the title of the podcast, Scalescape. And when we're breaking these words down, Scalescape, you know, intrinsic to amplifying growth within a company and into the market, scaling, right? Uh, we're also really taking into account uh, timing, uh, product, market, team, geography, location, demographic, and things like that. And for example, like what kind of challenges are we facing as a mobile first generation, you know, when we're really uh, scaling the product? So what is the biggest tip that you can give to founders right now in scalescaping a company towards success? I think you touch on a lot of things there in uh, the framing of the question. My direct answer to your question is knowing your customer really well. And there you have it. Gavin, thank you so much for you know coming in on today. I know that you're incredibly busy uh, with a lot on your schedule, but I've learned so much today from you and I just want to thank you again for doing this. Thank you, Justin. I really appreciate you having me on and I look forward to uh, um, getting some feedback from the audience and finding more ways to collaborate. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Scalescape today. If you would like to engage with the content of the podcast more, check out medium.com slash at Scalescape for show notes and resources. That's medium.com slash at Skillscape. I'll see you next week.